Human rights are women's rights. Change the world. <laughs> Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, and we have a great show today. I have on the line PJ Crowley, the former State Department spokesperson. We have a long discussion about the role of public affairs and public diplomacy in U.S. foreign policy. Uh, we talk about his career, most of which was spent in the U.S. military. The last part of his career, though, was spent serving as a civilian uh, in the State Department until he made some comments uh, about the treatment of Bradley Manning, the accused. WikiLeaker, uh, which the Department of Defense found untoward, and he was effectively forced to resign. So we talk about that episode certainly as well, but the our conversation, I should say, encompasses more than just that one part of his life and his career. It was a great discussion. I learned a lot. I think you will too. Before we get into our conversation, let me just put in a quick plug. Uh, if you have any ideas, suggestions, provocations, or you want to get in touch with me in any way, uh, hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or shoot me an email, markleongoldberg at gmail.com. Okay, here's my conversation with PJ Crowley. Enjoy. So my understanding is that I am interrupting you from uh, a writing project of some sort. Well, I'm doing research into uh, the future of public opinion uh, and conflict. Um, I, I, I began my government career uh, during the latter stages of the Vietnam conflict, where obviously uh, there was a profound split uh, in public opinion uh, over the war, both uh, in, the United, in the United States, and it ultimately uh, influenced uh, uh, calculations on the battlefield. Um, you know, North Korea was far more successful with its political strategy than the United States was, and, and that had a, uh, a direct bearing in the outcome. You know, fast forward uh, several decades, and we are now in an environment where uh, you have uh, uh, you know, people uh, not just uh, affected by a battlefield, but actually literally on the battlefield. Uh, you know, and and so, you know, with uh, Twitter, Facebook, and other uh, you know social media, uh, people are going to be not only spectators, but in many cases participants. Uh, and what a population thinks about the particular conflict will much more significantly influence the outcome uh, than we've seen in the past. And uh, I guess, is it your sense that um, sort of that those opinions can be formed sort of much more quickly now than in the past because of that sort of direct connection to the battlefield through through social media? Well, uh, we we fought our last total war, if you will, in 1945, uh, the last war that involves uh, uh, a a complete surrender on the deck of a battle of, of a of a. Uh, uh, a battleship, you know, the USS Missouri. Uh, all wars that we've experienced since then have been limited, uh, and that means political. Uh, so uh, what a population thinks uh, will uh, influence uh, whether uh, the United States or anybody else achieves their, uh, their strategic uh, objectives uh, in, in, in any kind of an intervention. Um, so public opinion is going to be, in my view, much more strategic uh, than uh, than we've experienced in the past, and and information technology will will play a role in that. You, you know, remember that um, even in something discreet like the uh, the raid that uh, uh, eliminated Osama bin Laden, uh, the operation was secret, mm -hmm. but it was not invisible. <laughs> right. I remember there was like the neighbor who who was an English language Twitter user. Yeah, who, uh, and, and literally, yeah. as as the uh, helicopters were descending on the compound in Abbottabad, right. uh, people were already tweeting out, uh, you know, some of the details of the of the operation. The president of the United States was not able to get to a podium to announce the results of the raid before he was scooped on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so uh, you know, to be successful in future uh, interventions, we're going to have to be prepared to far more significantly engage, you know, populations uh, and, and, and get them on our side and hold them mm 
mm-hmm. on our side. I wonder if Afghanistan is sort of an interesting case here because, you know, you have the intervention that occurred sort of shortly before uh, Facebook and, uh, you know, started to explode. I think Facebook had existed, but in its sort of earlier iteration, uh, but no one really used it then back in 2003. And then, of course, Twitter didn't really come along until like 2005, 2006. But the war, you know, sort of spans that entire, um, you know, decade where people went from sort of zero uh, social networking interaction to sort of full on social networking interaction. And you have that one more that sort of spans that that um, time period. Well, Afghanistan is still a, a, um, a relatively um, disconnected you know, society. Mm-hmm. There's the you other know, that is probably very prevalent in Kabul, but uh, but mm-hmm. not necessarily all that prevalent uh, elsewhere. Yeah. Um, you know, but if you look, you know, I mean, Afghanistan is a fascinating case where, if you and I are having this conversation in 2000, in October of 2001, uh, and and you said that we would still be in Afghanistan, uh, you know, 12 years later. And the Afghan people, by and large, would still be supportive of an international presence 12 years later. Uh, I, I would have responded that, you know, Afghan history does not suggest that that's going, going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, actually, it's, you know, Afghanistan in, the, in, in, that, in that respect is, is, uh, has been a significant success. Uh, but next door in Pakistan, where... Um, uh, you know, we have, uh, uh, you know, a, a, another you know, theater of war going on in the, uh, in the tribal areas. Um, I- interventions such as, you know, the bin Laden raid or, or the suggestion of uh, repeated drone attacks have, has very significantly inflamed, you know, Pakistani public opinion. Uh, what we initially, initially conceived as the war on terror was largely considered to be about hearts and minds. And so it, if, you, if you look at polling data in Pakistan today, where uh, perhaps uh, two-thirds or three-quarters of Pakistanis think the United States is an enemy, not a friend, uh, and what we're doing in the tribal areas is a violation of Pakistani sovereignty, it's not seen as being... Uh, uh, you know, operations that are are essential to not only U.S. security but also Pakistani, you know, security. Um, that that is a that, that then that has very potentially troubling implications in terms of this this thing we call the war on terror or the war on, against Al Qaeda. Uh, you know, Donald Rumsfeld in 2003 wrote a, a I thought a very significant memo where he he posed the question to his staff: Are we are we creating more extremists than we're eliminating? Uh, and that, that still remains the essential calculation in terms of whether we were ultimately to be successful uh, in, uh, in reducing, uh, not necessarily eliminating, but at least reducing uh, to an acceptable level the threat of terrorism to the United States and, and our friends and allies around the world. And, and do you have a sense of how you would answer that question today? The Rumsfeld snowflake question? Um, I, I, I think that we're making a mistake by treating uh, these operations as secret. It, it, you know, first of all, they're not. <laughs> you know, there there are a variety of websites that uh, that keep uh, a running tally of presumed, you know, drone strikes in the Fatah uh, and uh, and other places such as Yemen. Um, but the the fact that we treat them as secret denies us the ability to significantly engage. The Pakistani population, either for, from the United States' standpoint, or also from the Pakistani government standpoint, to try to explain uh, to this population that uh, that the steps that we're taking uh, have uh, have benefits for Pakistan, benefits for the region, and benefits for uh, the friends of Pakistan. Um, I'm uncomfortable with the idea that if if a vast majority of Pakistanis believe that the United States is an enemy uh, at some point in time you know uh, you know one or more people are going to act based on on uh, that belief and, and you go back to the Times Square bomber Faisal Shahzad a Pakistani American and yet you know, he, he said later his motivation for trying to blow up Times Square was in fact uh, the US drone campaign in the Fatah and so you've been uh, sort of working in the, in the foreign policy field for, for a long time. Um, so where, I guess, how did you get your start? Were you, were you into this 
were you into global affairs as as a child, as a teenager? Um, were your were your parents at, at all involved in this? Uh, I, I've always had an interest in international uh, relations, um, uh, although I had a, a, a an emphasis on on journalism uh, during college. Uh, actually, where did, where did you I had go to school? A, uh, Holy Cross up in Worcester, Massachusetts. Okay. Are you from the uh, uh, from the Massachusetts that area? I, I am from Red Sox Nation. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, that it's funny? I spoke. You probably know Heather Holbert of the National Security Network. And of course. I spoke to her for one of these, and and I asked her sort of, and and you know, I she's also uh, part of the Red Sox Nation, and she sort of made the case that it helped inform her liberal foreign policy outlook, being on the side of uh, the underdog for so many years. Sure. Yeah, although although the, the, those fortunes have flipped. Uh, right. you know, the, the Red Sox have, have, are now one of the strongest franchises uh, in baseball. They're, they're definitely part of the establishment. They're no yeah. longer you know, considered an underdog. Uh, but back no. then, in the formative years, they yeah. Uh, but 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 I yeah. you know during college, um, uh, I had a I had a low middle draft number uh, when right. the United States still had a you know a conscription military, and mm-hmm. so uh, uh, given the potential uh, that uh, I might be asked to serve in in the Vietnam War, uh, I I joined ROTC uh, at Holy Cross uh, and. Uh, with the idea that uh, I might serve four years and then uh, uh, th- and then go into either sports or or, or journalism, my father was involved uh, in uh, uh, in in sports public relations. Uh, Twenty six years later, uh, I found myself as a uh, uh, senior military officer on the National Security Council staff. So the idea. So uh, what year was this? Where you where you joined the ROTC? I, I joined in 1969. I was commissioned okay. in 1973, uh, and uh, and then you know, as an Air Force Colonel, I went to the White House to serve on the National Security Council staff under President Clinton in 1997. So, um, so, so the, did you end up then? You mentioned you serving in Vietnam. I did not. They, they were they were you know, by the time I joined the Air Force, they were not. Uh, they were not sending second lieutenants uh, into the theater. They were pulling people out of the theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so my my first uh, you know uh, experience with war was when I was uh, uh, deployed for Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. So, just uh, getting back to the, to the Vietnam era, I mean, you entered, I guess, at a time where I guess you know the public opinion had already pretty much shifted, right, against the war. Well, sure, and, and yeah, I mean, in terms of formative experiences, um, you know, the United States government uh, was misleading its own people during the Vietnam War. Um, you know, Lyndon Johnson decided to uh, to back into a major ground conflict. Um, the the uh, messaging out of the White House was that our stra- we had the right strategy, and our strategy was succeeding. Uh, in Vietnam, uh, you know those uh, those statements those statements were were both wrong. Were you? Uh, I guess. And, and in 1968, uh, uh, even though the the Tet Offensive was a military defeat for North Vietnam, it was a uh, a political and strategic uh, you know, victory. So, <laughs> having having watched that while in college, I I. I uh, it just said, you know, we, we, you know, part of what the, the challenge for the military going forward is uh, to reconnect the military as an institution uh, with broader society and make sure that when we go to war, uh, we go to war for the right reasons uh, and, uh, and the American people understand fully, uh, you know, what we're going to war uh, to achieve and, and, uh, and to, you know, sustain their support uh, during the course of those operations. We, we've been better at it over the past, uh, uh, you know, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, uh, still remains a challenge. So, I mean, you're in your, your early 20s, and you are sort of savvy enough to know that sort of the government is lying to you, but yet you, you join, uh, you know, the, you, you join the ROTC anyway. Uh, but, but beyond that, you sort of dedicated your, your career to serving the public, to serving the government. I, mean, I, became, was... I became one of those people uh, trying to explain the military as, as an institution uh, to a broader society that over time became less and less connected, you know, to the military. Many of the mechanisms that we put in place 
in the early 70s to make sure that we would never go to war again you know, without the explicit support of the American people and, and, and having the people have a stake in the outcome. Well, you know, the all-volunteer force that I served in has been far more successful than anyone could have envisioned. Uh, and yet that means that fewer and fewer people uh, are serving in the military and fewer and fewer people know uh, you know, have friends or neighbors that are serving in the military. Uh, and then you fast forward to uh, Iraq or, or Afghanistan, the military went to war, but uh, to a large extent, the American people did not. So, but you, so, I mean, you're, you're serving at that point in, you know, in, in the military that's pursuing, you know, an end that, that you disagree with, yet you decided to stay within that institution uh, despite sort of you saying that you knew that sort of the government was 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 sort of misleading the people at the well, time. Well, I mean, just just to clarify, when when the United States goes to war, um, uh, you know, the, the military should take orders from the chief executive, the commander in chief. Um, but the, the fact that the that the United States had gone to war uh, and and not really level with the American people in terms of uh, what we were trying to accomplish, how we were trying to accomplish it. Um, you know, Lyndon Johnson thought that if he if he really leveled with the American people about what it would take to succeed uh, in Vietnam, uh, he would put at risk uh, his domestic political agenda, the Great Society. So, uh, you know, we went to war in Vietnam incrementally. Uh, the, the the real dilemma there was, you know, we were we were trying to fight a limited war. Uh, and North Vietnam was fighting uh, a total war, and it was that disconnect that ultimately, you know, led us to be uh, less, you know, less than successful in terms of achieving our military objectives. I mean, what's interesting about Vietnam is that, uh, you know, go, fast forward, uh, uh, you know, f- 40 years, and, and we have achieved our strategic objectives. In Vietnam, Vietnam is uh, is now uh, um, um, uh, an ally of the United States, um, but uh, we did not achieve our military objectives. And so, uh, so sure, so the Vietnam War is ending, and you are still working for the Air Force at at, at the time. What were what were well, your, sure. what was your role? What were you doing? Well, uh, I, I had various roles uh, 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 deployed or, or was assigned. Uh, uh, in two uh, strategic air command bases, uh, yeah, SAC, as it was called, is no longer a, an, op- uh, an active military command. It was it was been, it's been replaced by something called strategic command. Uh, I was deployed to Turkey to the Air Force Academy, uh, and uh, my wife and I both had our first assignments at the Pentagon uh, in the uh, in the mid 1980s. Uh, then to Germany, then back to the Pentagon, then to the White House. And what were you? Uh, and so, so uh, at what year did you sort of make it to the? Or uh, let's 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 uh, fast forward. One of the it seems like one of you know you sort of went from the mid 80s to the mid 90s, but between the mid 80s and the mid 90s, there was of course the first Gulf War. Uh, yes. What what were you serving at the time? What was yes, your? Yes, I, I, I was I was uh, deployed to uh, Injerlik Air Base in Ankara, Turkey. The Air Force, uh, you know, waged a uh, both a, a southern air campaign and a northern air campaign. Uh, the northern air campaign got a lot less publicity. Right. Uh, but and then I was involved in the. Uh, uh, in the Kurdish relief operation called Provide Comfort, uh, in the aftermath of the Gulf War, you had the uh, Shia and Kurdish revolts. Uh, Saddam was able to put down both of those, but uh, uh, we did intervene in uh, in northern Iraq uh, to protect the Kurds. Yeah, uh, and uh, that the, uh... obviously, you know, that has been one of the reasons why uh, you know the northern part of Iraq has been you know far more stable. Uh, than other parts of the country uh, once we uh, went back into Iraq in 2003. And what was your, your role? What were, what were, you, were you working in public affairs at the time? Were you, uh, what, was, yes. what were you doing? I, I worked public affairs throughout my career. So what, so I guess, you know, looking at some of the public affairs challenges, the big public affairs challenges of the, of the first uh, Gulf War, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about that era. I was, I think I was in elementary school at the time. I'm 32 <laughs> now. But I was uh, still even then a CNN junkie. Uh, and read Time magazine pretty religiously, and uh, you know it seems it seems to me you know the 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 spectrum of the media at that point you know at least during the first Gulf War was really seemingly pretty much just CNN right I mean what was your 
What were some of your big challenges? Well, uh, I mean, <laughs> the Gulf War made CNN. Right. Um, I, I, I mean, it, it was, uh, you know, if, if Vietnam was the first television war, uh, the Gulf War was the first live war. Yeah. Uh, remember, you had uh, you know uh, Bernard Shaw and right. Peter Arnott from uh, Baghdad, broad- yeah. broadcasting from Baghdad. Uh, you know, Saddam Hussein uh, permitted them to be there so that there would be an open channel for him to be able to communicate directly to the American people uh, and directly and instantaneously to the uh, uh, to the first Bush administration. So did that? I mean, did that affect that that uh, CNN effect? I guess has been the, what, the, what they've called it. Then did, did that surprise you at the time? Is that something they? Well, it was, it was revolutionary. Um, and, and, and so how did you deal with that? There's been a great deal of there's been a great deal of scholarship about yeah. the so-called CNN effect. Um, it 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 uh, I think in many respects it's been overstated, but certainly it's an indication of the impact of a global media environment. Uh, on decision makers, uh, both in our government and elsewhere, uh, it, it, it was suggested that uh, it was the pictures of, from CNN in Somalia that pushed the Bush administration to intervene there in 1992. Um, I don't think that's true, but but certainly uh, having uh, having that that CNN and and, it, and obviously the other cable networks that have grown up with CNN. Uh, as as literally intelligence sources, uh, it, it, it certainly is an accelerant in, in terms of putting pressure on governments to perhaps make decisions faster than they might have otherwise. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're, we're testing the the opposite of that uh, currently in Syria. We we are all are seeing the tragic images, you know, from Syria, and it, it, it's putting pressure on the Obama administration. But so far, the president has been resisting that pressure to intervene. Now, do you think, just thinking about that last point, do you think that's something unique about CNN versus, say, uh, social media platforms and, and other media, uh, um, comparing the two? So, so CNN, you can you know make the argument, help propel or convince the American public that war was a good idea. Um, yet you're seeing even more sort of detailed information coming out of Syria, even more sort of firsthand accounts of horrific massacres and atrocities. Yet the public is not, you know, the, the appetite for intervention is certainly not there. Um, well, the appetite probably is not there because of our directly because of our experience in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the population is weary of getting involved directly in another war. Uh, in the Middle East, I think that caution is justified. Um, I mean, what you what 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 you've seen is 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 CNN and its impact within the United States has has now literally gone global. Uh, you saw the impact of Al Jazeera in the context of the Arab Spring and certainly the demonstrations in Tahrir Square. Hosni Mubarak tried to disconnect his country. You know, from the internet, and was unable to do it. The information infrastructure present in Cairo was just too significant, you know, for him to be able to shut off. In Syria, um, it, it's been, you know, social media has proven uh, its value. Uh, Syria, for a long time, was not permitting uh, journalists, traditional journalists, to enter Syria, and so well, we were relying on citizen journalists to provide accounting of the impact in in Aleppo or Holmes or other other places. Now that that is providing a very rich you know source of information. The dilemma obviously is that it's not information that can be easily you know verified. So you you do wonder whether uh, you know social media opens up the window for what we used to call propaganda. Mm-hmm. I wonder, I guess my, my sense is that fewer people than we think, I, I think all the elites are tuned into social media and, you know, follow Twitter, Facebook, and then follow these things pretty closely. But I think the masses, while they're on social media, are not necessarily tuned into, um, you know, sort of YouTube videos coming out of, of Syria, even though they can be if they wanted to be. Whereas, uh, you know, back in you know, the early 90s when there was just sort of the, the masses were sort of tuned into CNN because that was kind of the only, only game in town. Um, that, I mean, that would be sort of my, my sort of you know, knee-jerk impression of, of sure. the differences. And, and that, that's, a, that's, a rich, that's a rich area of scholarship. Uh, I, I do think that when you, when you talk about international affairs or, or foreign policy, it is still 
uh, a uh, it's still an area that's lar- that's driven by elite public opinion, and then in turn, elite public you know elite public opinion influences uh, how the masses uh, you know you know what what side they take. Um, so, so you know, a you, know, you could have an elite columnist or an elite, uh, you know, uh, expert, but but that person will now have friends and followers, and and so if uh, if a Tom Friedman of the New York Times believes, uh, you know, something about uh, you know Iraq or Syria or developments around the world, uh, he's going to bring with him, uh, you know, millions of of average Americans uh, who who read him every day and and are influenced by his perspective. Uh, in the world, I mean that's part of the nature of of this global media environment. Uh, you know, we we now tend to be somewhat self-selective in terms of uh, you know who we read, who we are in touch with, uh, who influences us, um, and, and uh, you know so. But but yes, it's it's it is true that uh, elite public opinion will still have a have a profound impact in what uh, domestic. Uh, what broader domestic foreign policy believes or foreign opinion is, uh, 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 but but obviously it's still very influential. So I, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm asking I'm asking about your career, but but sort of bookending it with uh, uh, various sort of U.S. wars. Uh, but I suppose that's appropriate if you're in the military. Um, after after the first Gulf War, were you involved in the uh, Somali operation at all? No, not, uh, I mean I was at the Pentagon, but I was not directly. Okay. I, I, I was influenced by it. Uh, and engaged from Washington, but not directly involved in it. Uh, what, so, uh, but then obviously sort of a, a more larger American effort was the, the Balkans uh, in Bosnia. Were you, uh, were you still at the Pentagon uh, at that point? But when, you, when, you look, I mean, when you look at Somalia, that's a, that's a perfect case of where there, there, we, we did not effectively communicate the fundamental shift in the, in the mission, and that ultimately affected uh, how how uh, the operation unfolded uh, in 1992? Uh, we sent forces there in a humanitarian mission because of of uh, uh, of the uh, of, the, of the, the, the the tremendous suffering of the Somali people and the, and the literal evaporation of the Somali government. Uh, but at some point in time, it morphed from a humanitarian operation to a nation-building exercise uh, that put the uh, uh, put the United States and others uh, uh, in in conflict with uh, one of the major clans there, and that right. you know led to Black Hawk Down, and 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 obviously, you know, President Clinton uh, ended the uh, Somali operation, uh, you know, a few months after that. Um, and, and, and obviously, you know, perceptions from Somalia influenced what we did not do uh, in the context of Rwanda, and, and but then it, it also influenced what we did do, ultimately in the context of Bosnia and later uh, in Kosovo. Uh, I was directly involved in the Kosovo operation in 1999. Uh, what, know, were working, you, what were you do, uh, doing with the Kosovo operation? Well, I was I was at the White House, but okay. then de- deployed. Uh, you know, by by the uh, by the White House to support uh, you know Secretary General Javier Solana because you know to some extent Kosovo was uh, you know the the first of of a, 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 a primarily an information war. It was not about the military defeat of Slobodan Milosevic. It was about the political defeat of Slobodan Milosevic. Uh, his strategy was to split NATO, which was going to war for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Allied strategy was to force him to uh, 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 to uh, remove his forces from Kosovo. We were successful because of the the political co- coalition formed under NATO held. You know, European public opinion held for 78 days of of bombing, which was far more than we had anticipated. Uh, and how, so was it part of your job working with Javier Solana to help sort of maintain that uh, that 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 hold of, of public yeah. opinion? Well, p- part of what we, you know, there was a lot of disinformation on the on the on the battlefield, um, uh, and uh, part of what we tried to do was to make sure that uh, uh, every single day, if whatever was ha- happening on the battlefield, we were, if we made a mistake. 
uh, we were the first to acknowledge our mistakes. If, if Milosevic tried to invent uh, an atrocity uh, trying to influence European public opinion, mm-hmm. uh, we would try to discount his disinformation uh, in the same news cycle. Uh, and, and so to, they had a very a major communication element to it, uh, which ultimately helped us uh, uh, helped help us or help, uh, helped us you know solidify public opinion in our favor. Uh, ultimately, Milosevic started to you know perceptions of the of, of the conflict where he, he he was losing his own people and he uh, he folded his tent before he lost control of his own public opinion. How well did the sort of public opinion uh, did the public in Europe and the United States sort of know or understand that shortly after the uh, NATO bombing campaign, Milosevic accelerated? ethnic cleansing on their ground through Operation Horseshoe and, and other uh, sure. maneuvers. How, that, I mean, that is was... that because, I mean, you know, and, you know, and also like sort of looking back at that, um, at, at sort of that incident, I was a little more, I was older, I was a little more aware. I was, uh, you know, a senior in high school in, in 99. Um, it seemed as if this was just the world's largest coast of a humanitarian emergency. You know, the percept, you're talking about perceptions. I thought, oh, hundreds of thousands of millions of people were being displaced, but really the numbers were actually not that 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 big. I mean, but, of course, but obviously, was, it was like that tragic was his, on an individual. That was his undoing. Um, uh, I mean, remember. Well, it was, NATO, but I'm wondering if if NATO, NATO was NATO, going to war for the first time ever. Uh, there there was uh, uh, there was concern about it, uh, but uh, when Milosevic pushed uh, the Kosovars out of um, out of Kosovo into refugee camps in Macedonia and Albania. Um, th- that that was the picture that, in my view, changed the direction of the campaign. Uh, the, then you know, the, Europe, the American people, European people, uh, could see you know exactly what this this conflict was all about. That you were seeing ethnic cleansing. Uh, in the heart of Europe for the first time since World War II. Uh, it, it actually solidified uh, European public opinion in favor of the, uh, the, Kosovo, of, of, of the Kosovo campaign. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately, when Milosevic uh, was visited by you know, two diplomats, one Russian and one Finnish, uh, you know, Viktor Chernomyrdin and, uh, uh, and Atasari, and, and he understood that even Russia was not going to come to uh, to Serbia's aid, uh, he knew he, he his 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 ultimately his strategy would not be successful. You know that that point you make about about uh, Russia not coming to his aid, uh, at least or diplomatically. I mean, there there are some parallels you could draw to the current situation in in Syria, where you have you know the the sort of geopolitics are kind of aligned along the same way, where you have the sort of Russian client. And the West uh, on the other side, uh, but you know, th- back then, uh, as, as obviously you're you're deep involved in this, the um, Security Council couldn't get behind a, a resolution authorizing the intervention. Yet the intervention happened anyway. Uh, you know, I, do you think we're in Syria, sort of lining up around, or are forces aligning to that sort of similar similar outcome? Well, it, it's it's possible. Uh, I mean, and, you, and you're quite right. Um, in, in the case of Kosovo, Russia was not going to allow a Security Council resolution uh, enabling the Kosovo campaign as it had in 1991 with the Gulf War. Uh, and, uh, and as a result, the United States turned to NATO, and NATO embraced the mission. Uh, as former U.N. Secretary General Kofi Annan said, at the end of the day, it, it was not legal in the sense that you had intervention without absent UN uh, authority, mm-hmm. and yet it was broadly seen as legitimate. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is the conundrum in in Syria yeah. uh, that uh, absent a UN Security Council resolution, which is highly improbable, mm-hmm. uh, you don't have an Arab League call for intervention as you did in uh, the context of Libya. Uh, and I'm not sure, given the European economic crisis, that there's a significant appetite for a NATO-led mission in Syria. Mm-hmm. Uh, absent any kind of, of vehicle that gives 
uh, and intervention legitimacy. That's one of the reasons why uh, the Obama administration is hesitating, I think, understandably so. You know, I, just looking at, at, and you obviously served in the Obama administration, which, which we'll talk about, but my sort of sense is that, um, you know, Obama, you know, sort of, views the Security Council as sort of the sole legitimate arbiter of, uh, you know, what makes war legal. Uh, or, uh, you know, just looking, for example, at the uh, Libya intervention, there was so much effort put in uh, to, uh, you know, to securing that Security Council resolution before the Libya uh, intervention. And it seems sort of, you know, as if he puts a lot of stock in the Security Council uh, as having that sort of legal authority. Uh, and so at least it seems to me that absent the Security Council resolution, um, you know, military options seem off the table. Well, they'll, they'll become much more costly if you, if you undertake them without, you know, some kind of legitimizing vehicle. Uh, I mean, the U.N. is the coin of the realm. It's not the only one. Kosovo is a good example of where uh, the operation was broadly viewed as legitimate, even though it did not have explicit uh, U.N. sanction. Um, but but obviously you know, you, the other side of the coin is is Iraq, you know, where um, it, it did uh, achieve uh, significant things, but at a horrific cost, and uh, and was not seen by the vast majority of the world as being a, a legitimate step for the United States to take. So uh, speaking about Iraq, that's sort of the, the next sort of uh, major war. We or there's of course Afghanistan, but I want to talk to you, which we've already talked about. But I want to talk to you about Iraq. You were were you working in government in in '03 in March '03, or where, where were you? No, I was outside of government. Okay, uh, and were uh, were you in the think tank world, or were you in private sector? I was at that in the think tank world. Yes. Okay. The well, captain start to what 2004. I know you had a, a good run there. For a while, where were you? Yeah, I, no, I, I was at CAP in two thousand three. Okay, that was for the, the early days, I suppose, of, of CAP. I was one of the early employees of the Center for American Progress. Yes, there you go. Um, and so, so working sort of in the in the out years and in, in in the Bush years, what were you trying to hope to accomplish at at the Center for American Progress? Well, I was working on uh, on national security issues, including Iraq, but I was also working on on the. Uh, uh, on homeland security issues and and uh, the you know what was called for a time the war on terror now it's been renamed by the Obama administration you know the war against al qaeda mm-hmm. uh, and, and obviously there was an attempt by the Bush administration primarily by the vice president to shoehorn the Iraq campaign uh, within the uh, the war on terror and it, it was obviously not an easy fit because whatever links existed before the inter- the invasion you know, between um, Al Qaeda and Iraq were were pretty incidental. Obviously, uh, you know, ultimately, when the Bush administration said that Iraq became the central front in the war on terror, that was a self fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. I, and and uh, you know, I want to make sure I, I don't want to skip over this major uh, part of American history, but I want to make sure we talk about your time at the State Department. So you joined in two thousand nine, I, I assume. I, um, right at the start of the administration? Uh, I was confirmed by the Senate as the Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs in May of 2009. And, you know, so, you know, what, one, one question I had in my mind, obviously we'll, we'll talk about your time there, but what um, you're working on uh, directly for uh, Hillary Clinton and what, and now we're obviously in, in sort of the, the Kerry administration, what differences do you see between the two in both sort of how they approach their job and, and their worldviews, if, if there are any? Well, obviously, John, John Kerry is, uh, uh, is still in the, in the early months of his tenure uh, as Secretary of State. I think if, uh, you know, for the most part, they're, they're both uh, intrepid. <laughs> they're both very active uh, uh, Hillary Clinton, depending on on the standard that you use, uh, was one of the, if not the most traveled, you know, Secretary of State uh, in in history, and and it appears that John Kerry is uh, uh, has picked up the very same pace. Uh, obviously, uh, he like uh, Hillary Clinton before him, uh, he's actively testing the waters to see what may be uh, feasible in terms of Middle East peace. Um, uh, but uh, I think he's off to a, a, a very impressive start. 
Uh, and on, on the sort of the substances, substance of what they, of, of their worldviews, do, do they, are, is there much difference? I mean, does one focus on the other? I mean, well, my, I mean, my, I mean, obviously, yeah. you know, when, when Hillary Clinton, you know, uh, began as Secretary of State working for President Obama, you had, uh, you know, you, you, you had, you know, two active wars, the wars in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, during her tenure, uh, you know, the Iraq war has ended. Um, and we've advanced in Afghanistan to the point where, you know, there's now a projected uh, end uh, next year in 2014. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton was there at the start of uh, what's become the the Arab awakening. Uh, now, John, it's, it's John Kerry's challenge, uh, you know, with a new government in Egypt, uh, with uh, at least an interim government in Tripoli, uh, with a new government in Yemen. Uh, you know, he, he, he's picking up uh, in, in perhaps, you know, phase uh, 2.0 or 3.0 of the so-called Arab awakening. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so, uh, but, uh, so they, they were facing the same challenge, but from, from two, you know, two different vantage points, two so different set of circumstances. I'm just thinking about those early days of the uh, Obama administration and the end of the Bush administration. I mean, you know, the, the world looks so hungry for a sort of a new sort of kind of U.S. foreign policy. And, you know, they, they put a lot of faith and a lot of hope in, in the Obama administration. And there was this profound period of reengagement with various international actors and international institutions. Uh, I guess, you know, how did that engagement, how did that like policy of engagement, strategy of engagement manifest itself uh, from a public diplomacy standpoint early on? Well, uh, I mean, Hillary Clinton uh, was almost literally the you know the face of U.S. engagement in many parts of the world. Uh, you know, I mean, the the president has to divide his time always between among you know domestic, international, and economic policy. Um, so the, the president will be involved in in certain issues, but not necessarily other issues. Obviously, the Secretary of State is is full time on foreign policy, and in, and in many parts of the world, she became you know the face of of the Obama administration's uh, engagement you know strategy. Um, and obviously, you know some some very significant successes. Probably the the most significant was. Uh, uh, you know, shift, uh, building a a more uh, or strengthening uh, the uh, international coalition against Iran. Um, in in the summer of 2010, uh, there were meaningful sanctions uh, uh, added through the United Nations. Uh, you know, thanks to some significant diplomacy by the Secretary and the President. Uh, that was probably something that that uh, you know people did not see as being feasible in 2009. Uh, you know, the Bush administration had supported dialogue between European nations and Iran, but had not joined the so-called P5 plus one process. The United States did, under President Obama, you know, reengage in the P5 plus one process, and when. Our early negotiations uh, proved unsatisfying. You know, we're able to work with countries like, you know, China and Russia and Japan and Korea, uh, and got through meaningful sanctions that have, uh, you know, had an impact uh, in Iran. Mm -hmm. uh, it hasn't changed Iran's calculations yet in terms of what it might be able, might be willing to do in terms of accounting for its nuclear program. But there's no question that's put additional pressure on the government. Uh, in uh, in Tehran, you know, I, I wanted to in, in the remaining moments be sure to, to uh, ask you and talk to you about the end of your career uh, at the State Department, uh, which you know sort of happened just right around the time of the Libya intervention as well. So, what's the story? You were giving a talk to a class at Harvard, is is that right? I was talking to a group at MIT. At MIT, okay, close back back to Boston where it all began. Um, and what? So, what exactly did you say? Well, I was asked a question about um, why the United States government was torturing uh, Private Bradley Manning, who obviously was a central figure in the uh, in the WikiLeaks case, and and uh, uh, stands accused of uh, providing hundreds of thousands of documents to WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. He's uh, he's pled guilty to some counts. He starts a military court martial uh, next month. Um, uh, my response was that uh, you know, Bradley Manning belongs in jail. Uh, he's accused of serious crimes. 
Um, he's innocent until proven guilty, uh, but if he's found guilty, uh, he should serve a lengthy prison sentence for doing uh, considerable damage to the United States national interest. At the same time, uh, you know, what had, be what had become an international issue you know, was his treatment in the military brig uh, at, uh, at Quantico. Um, had been subject to you know, demonstrations uh, outside of the uh, military installation. Uh, at, at a point, he was uh, at night stripped of his clothing. He was under uh, a potential suicide watch. And, and I told the students that uh, I thought that the treatment of Bradley Manning was uh, unproductive. I think I used the terms ridiculous and stupid. Um, and uh, uh, and that eventually was, it, you know, was um, you know, became, my comments became public. And uh, uh, So what, I, happened, what happened right after the, the comments were made public? Did you sort of get a call from... From someone, how how did that? What happened next? Well, let us just say that there there was a disagreement between what I said uh, and and what was the administration's uh, view of his treatment at Quantico, and and given that disagreement, I thought that I could no longer effectively serve as uh, the president's uh, foreign policy spokesman. So, I guess so. so you know, you spent a, a lengthy career in inside the government, try to change, you know, try to changing things from the inside. What I, I guess, how do you decide when to speak out? Uh, you know, how do you, you know, is is it something that sort of when you feel that you've reached the limits of what you can accomplish working within the system that you sort of make a sort of a public protest? Um, I, I I I didn't I didn't say what I said as a protest. I was giving an honest answer to a, a thoughtful question. Um, I, I didn't. I didn't say what I said to create a public controversy. I, I said what I said because I did. I, I thought that uh, Bradley Manning's treatment was undercutting the credibility of what was a very important prosecution. And did you sort of not expect the the reaction that that was? Well, I, 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 I did not think that uh, what I said to a group at MIT would become a a major public issue, but it did. Um, and was you know had there been other instances in your career when you sort of thought about sort of going public with some sort of injustice or some sort of perceived? Well, I understand what was happening. Um, the uh, the UN Special Rapporteur right. uh, for Torture uh, had requested the State Department uh, our cooperation in arranging a private visit between himself and Private Manning so he could assess. Uh, you know, the conditions under which Private Manning was being held. The Pentagon refused uh, to grant uh, that, uh, uh, you know, that uh, permission. That meeting never took place. Uh, ultimately, uh, you know, the U.N., through its own investigation, determined that, uh, that Bradley Manning's treatment was, uh, 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 you know, uh, was a, uh, uh, you know, contravened international standards uh, and, uh, uh, challenged uh, his dignity uh, as a uh, as a as an individual and a soldier. Uh, the court, the military court that will try him next month, agreed that uh, Bradley Manning's treatment was excessive, uh, and uh, depending on the outcome of the court martial, will reduce his sentence uh, by uh, by uh, some amount uh, because of the inappropriate treatment. So. Um, it was just a matter of, of, again, as the State Department spokesman, I felt that, that I, I was in part a guardian of the American narrative. Uh, you know, if, if we have a challenge around the world, it's that uh, people, too many people think that we say one thing and do another. Uh, so, um, I, I, you know, that, that remains the challenge for anybody who is trying to communicate uh, U.S. foreign policy around the world. Uh, so, uh, it, it, and, and perhaps my instinct to provide an honest answer goes back to my uh, experience before I came into government, watching a government that was not being entirely truthful uh, with its own people. And I, I felt that uh, when I'm put in that position, uh, I try to, to the best of my ability uh, to, uh, to communicate effectively to the American people and, and audiences around the world. Now, I, was asked an on, I was asked a straightforward question. I gave an honest answer. Now, was there uh, – we're, we're running short on time. Just wanted to ask you uh, one final question uh, about WikiLeaks because, you know, you, you, you were there. You were the, the sort of voice of the State Department as all these leaks uh, unfolded. 
you know, were you ever did you were you ever in this position of, of what you described where sort of a cable said one thing, but official US policy was another thing, and you had to sort of explain the difference? Sure. Well, um, WikiLeaks was a little bit unusual uh, in that because these cables were classified, we refused to talk about classified information. Um, so we would not directly comment on uh, the particular contents of, of any one document if that document was marked confidential or secret. Uh, at the same time, we, we tried to the best of our ability to put some of these issues in broader context without compromising uh, information that was classified. Is it is it possible to sort of assess the damage that it did to U.S. sort of diplomacy and U.S. maybe U.S. public diplomacy in, in particular, having all this this out? Well, um, I mean, there were there, there were three primary impacts. Um, I mean, the first was the we were concerned about the impact on diplomacy that you know that diplomats around the world talk to leaders of other governments all the time, and the presumption of those conversations is that they are confidential. Uh, it allows diplomacy to do what it does on behalf of the American people. So we were concerned about that violation of confidence and thought that perhaps um, you know countries would be less forthcoming in either in, in uh, communicating what's important to the to American diplomats or cooperating uh, on shared interests. Thankfully, through a lot of hard work, that 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 has not happened. Um, Although it, you know there have been stresses and strains you know, in particular relationships in particular countries, um, a, a second I think you know more significant concern is that uh, um, these cables detailed a variety of people who talked to the United States and were candid in their comments. Um, it put uh, real lives and real careers at risk, and 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 that's where the primary damage has been done. Uh, you know, people have been endangered because these cables were compromised. Uh, well, PJ, uh, thank you so much for your time. This was, uh, this was very interesting. And look forward to seeing your research on uh, public opinion and, uh, and public diplomacy. Where, where can we find that? Where, are you writing an, art, uh, uh, an article, a book? Uh, we'll, we'll see where it goes. Okay. Uh, it, could be, it could be one or the other. Academic-y or more yeah. from public assumption? Well, okay. I, I, I'm, I'm, I've moved from the government world into the academic okay. world and have a great time doing that. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Okay. Well, big thank you to PJ for talking with me. That was a great conversation. Uh, and there will be more, more podcasts to come. So if you made it to the end, I assume that means you found some value in this. Uh, if you have the chance, please uh, review us on iTunes. That would be super helpful. It will get us noticed by the masses a little more easily. So give us a five-star review if you think we deserve it. Alrighty, until next week, thanks for listening. Bye.